When I have leaders say, oh, we don't have anybody tell us that we're being hurtful or harmful, that's actually a very concerning thing to me. When people say we get no negative feedback, what that tells me is, is that you have not made negative feedback safe. And so microaggressions are just, they're so important to look at and thinking about, you know, if somebody tells me that they felt harmed, as a leader, I need to look at my own behavior and say, okay, was what I did harmful? And whether or not what I did was harmful or it was something I do again, I still need to validate this person's experience of what happened. In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture which depends on the quality of our relationships, which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Welcome to this edition of Conversations. I'm Brian Gorman, your host and a coach here at Quantivos. And our guest today is Dr. Lee Cordell. Lee is the founder and CEO of the Institute for Trauma and Psychological Safety. Welcome, Lee. Thank you for having me. Lee, my first question is probably a question on many of our listeners' minds. Why should organizational leaders give a hoot about trauma? Well, I think that part of that question is really understanding what trauma is and how it even in, enters into the business space, right? Because I think a lot of us, when we think about trauma, we think about these really serious, significant experiences that people have been through. And a lot of times we think about physical things like a car accident or you know some sort of um, violence or a natural disaster. And in reality, what we found over the last 20 to 30 years, especially from a uh, research and uh, a academic perspective, is that trauma doesn't just have to be these really big things. And it doesn't just have to be physical. A lot of times it's psychological because as humans, we're mammals, we're designed to survive by connecting with other people. And also sometimes it's little things. It's little, what we like to call ruptures or um, instances of disconnection where we reach out as a human to somebody else and that connection isn't returned in a way that feels good for us. And when we think about business, business is all about connection. And, you know, as a business owner, what I found is, is that the clients that we have, they are so invested and so when they feel really satisfied and really seen and heard and valued, they come back and they spend a lot more money and they refer their friends and they do all of those things. And from an organizational perspective in general, you know, when we think about our teams, we think about employees, we think about customers or uh, whomever we're serving, being able to recognize when there are things that people are bringing into the workplace that could prevent them from connecting with others. And also being able to understand that sometimes we as leaders or as the humans who make the decisions, sometimes we do things that we think are 
connective and good for the humans that we're working with. And they're like, yeah, not so much. And being able to create that safety where people can say, hey, that didn't feel good. Hey, um, you know, I've had a past experience where when I do things like this, it feels really hard for me. Being able to have employees or uh, customers come to us and say, yeah, you know, I need something different here, or this is something hard I've experienced, and us being able to support them in that, it really changes the the impact of that relationship. And what we've just seen time and time again is that everybody benefits when we look at things through a lens of, hey, some people are going to walk in here with stuff that's happened to them. And us being able to be curious and support them through that is going to help all of us in the long run. I was talking with a professional colleague of mine around this topic, and she does a lot of, of work in the area as well. And it just astonished me when she told me the percentage of adults who have experienced what are called adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. And sometimes those are incredibly traumatic and they don't go away with childhood. Um, I have a son who is adopted out of a very abusive home. And for a very long time after he got here, some things that I thought were just neutral statements would trigger incredible reactions, incredibly visceral reactions. Yeah. And so it took a long time working with both myself not to feel that those were responses to me, but also working with him to learn that the way I said something was not necessarily with the same intent, even though the words may be the same as his natal parents had used. Yeah. What you're describing really reminds me of this analogy that we use when we teach people about, we refer to it as big T versus little T trauma. And the big T's are the sledgehammers. Those are the things that we typically think about that are the serious and significant to most humans on the planet. The little t traumas are more like paper cuts. And so when people say to me, well, is it really that big of a deal? Are microaggressions really that big of a deal? Are if, if one of, if I say something that bothers an employee, is it really, is that really a reason for them to quit? And I understand from that perspective, you can go, really, is a paper cut that bad? And what's helpful for us to understand is that that's probably not that first paper cut that that person's gotten, right? So if if I grew up in a home or if I've had some significant work experience in the past where somebody handed me a piece of paper every single day and they gave me a paper cut in the same spot every single day and anytime I said, hey, that hurts, they said, oh, stop, you're just being a baby about it, right? There's invalidation and there's there's harm being done. I could come along 10 years later and go to hand this person a piece of paper and have no malintent whatsoever in my action. But to that person, that's going to feel dangerous and scary because they know, hey, when somebody in a place of power or somebody who can force me to take a piece of paper, hands me a piece of paper, I'm going to get cut and it's going to hurt. Yeah. And so as us handing the paper, we're like, I don't understand. And this, and a lot of times the person who's receiving the paper is like, I don't understand either why I'm reacting like this. I just know that I don't want to take a piece of paper from you. And I can't explain to you why. Yeah. Obviously we're not asking leaders to be therapists. No. So how do you recognize those kinds of underlying traumas 
and respond to them as leaders? I think this is something that, you know, we, we work with people in academia, in corporate, in uh, education, um, K through 12 education, in uh, healthcare, first response, all over the place. And that is probably the biggest question we get is, but I don't know how to handle that. Like, it feels overwhelming to me to think about how I should respond to that because I don't have therapy training or mental health clinician training. And the thing that I like to say is, is that you don't need any of that. What you need is to remember that you're a mammal, right? You need to remember you're a mammal. That's all I need. And what mammals do when another mammal is hurting that they care about is they, they provide something called attunement. And attunement is I'm going to pay attention to you and I'm going to validate the experience that you're going through. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to say that your thoughts are right or rational. It doesn't mean that I'm going to say that your behavior in response to whatever caused you to be triggered or activated is rational or acceptable for this place. But I am going to validate that there's something going on with you, that there are some feelings or some fear or some past painful experiences. And I'm going to just be here with you in that moment for a minute. And it sounds too simple. It really sounds too simple. And what is so fascinating is when people take this back into their spaces and they come back, they're like, this worked with my kids. This worked with my husband, my partner. This worked with my, with my employees. This worked with like the mailman. This worked with everybody. And it, and it is a really hard tool to practice when there's a lot going on in your life. So that's part of it also is like being able to notice if, if you are in attunement with this other person and that will bring down the energy, that intense energy of most interactions, I would say 80 to 90% of the time. And that person's going to go, I'm so sorry. You know what? I'm realizing that this reminded me of this back here and I got really upset and I shouldn't have done that. And it's like, hey, okay, I see you. What can we do next time? Right? What do you need for next time? And when that person realizes that you're someone that if they have that kind of reaction with, you're not going to freak out yourself or you're not going to get really upset and fire them or you're not going to start crying and they're going to have to fix your feelings. They start to see you as a safe person. They'll stop having those types of reactions with you because they recognize, hey, this person's not going to paper cut me. This person's not going to hit me with a sledgehammer. There's somebody that I can trust. I think there are any number of important things in what, what you just said. Yeah. For me, the first is that we need to relate to those people we work with as people. Yes. Uh, really getting to know one another as people. And the second is coming from a position of caring and curiosity mm -hmm. rather than a, a position of judgment or in the case of a leader, a position of authority and in control. Yes. Yes. You know, uh, John Maxwell has written so much about leadership. And, and one of the things that we pulled into our organization from what he teaches is those five levels of leadership. And he talks about how the base level of leadership is somebody's following you because they have to. The next one is they're following you because they choose to. The next one is they're following you because they know that like you've helped them. You've done something for them you've produced something. And that fourth one is they know that you care about them. 
they know that if something comes up, you are going to consider their feelings and their desires. And even if you make a decision that they don't like, they will respect it because they go, yeah, I don't like that that's what you've decided to do. And I know you've considered me. I know you've thought about how this is going to affect me. And when you start hitting those levels of leadership, the cool part about it is, is that when other people say things about you as the leader, those people will step in and say, no, 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 no. You just, you just don't know Brian like I do. Because Brian would never do that. Brian always considers people's perspectives before he makes a, a decision. So it must have just been a mistake. And that type of connection in your organization, it's really rare and it's also really powerful. Those are the organizations that last for a really long time. And so the base of that is attunement. And leadership at that level drives loyalty, if you will. Yes. It, it drives retention. Mm -hmm. It drives engagement. It drives all of those things that we find so lacking in so many of today's organizations. Yes. You know, so in healthcare, we talk about looking at retention because retention is a huge issue right now, post-pandemic, or I don't know if we can say, I, I still say post-pandemic. I don't know if that's a that's the right term, but you know, it, it costs $80,000 in the United States on average to replace a nurse. It costs about $250,000 to replace a uh, advanced practice provider like myself, I'm a nurse practitioner or physician assistant, and it costs over a million dollars to replace the average physician. And then if they're a surgeon, even more typically. And so when we go into a lot of organizations and we're talking, they're like, yeah, we need to, you know, we, we really are looking at the ROI in terms of how much we're spending here. And, and so, you know, retention, like attunement, is that really a place that we want to invest? And I, I show them, I'm like, look at what would happen if you lost 10% less of your workforce. And I don't even mean from a, how you staff the operating room, how many patients you can have on each floor. I just mean from an HR perspective of onboarding this person. If we could just save 10% of that, that is a lot of money. And so I think a lot of times there's an argument of, well, I don't want to or it doesn't make sense for us to invest in these quote unquote softer spaces. And, you know, what we try to show people is that that's your low hanging fruit. That right there is the place that you can save so much money by really just talking and caring about people. And also you don't have to hide armor yourself up as a leader. Cause I think that that's another piece. You know, I've spent a lot of time in the, the C-suite in some, healthcare organizations. And a lot of times it's, well, I can't show anyone my feelings. I have to like be really strong. And, and that's, that's the image I get is somebody armored up. And I, I'm like, no, people want, they want to hear about your kids. They want to connect with you. They want to resonate with you. They want to feel like there's not a separation between you and that C-suite office or them in that C-suite office. And so, so many times I think the things that we learn to kind of protect ourselves as leaders are the very hard things that we get to undo and unlearn. And again, just come back to the, we're all humans. We're all humans. Earlier, 
Lee, you mentioned microaggressions. Mm -hmm. And part of the work that you do is around psychological safety. Yes. I know so many leaders that I talk to take that attitude in, in the early parts of our conversation around what's the big deal? Yeah. You know, can't they just get over it? Just let it go. Can you help us understand a little bit more why microaggressions are a big deal? Yes. I think the name itself doesn't do us any favors because we're calling them these teeny tiny things. Again, paper cuts. When we think about microaggressions or any sort of situation in which we don't create inclusion for the humans that are working in our spaces that are showing up and committing a lot of their time every day to being in space with us, people will go above and beyond. People will do their best work and feel really uh, intrinsically motivated to do their best work when they feel like they belong, when they feel like they are seen and they are heard and they are valued. And when we, it's not necessarily even the making of the comments. It's not even necessarily the, the paper cut happening, right? If I say something that somebody finds hurtful or harmful, it's not even the fact that it's said, it's the fact that if I'm going to bring it up, if I'm afraid that I'm going to lose my psychological safety, which is that I feel safe taking risks in my work environment and not feeling like I'm going to be shunned. If that psychological safety isn't there, then it's just reinvalidating this person's experience. And so the worst thing, when I have leaders say, oh, we don't have anybody tell us that we're being hurtful or harmful, that's actually a very concerning thing to me. Yeah. When people say we get no negative feedback, what that tells me is, is that you have not made negative feedback safe. And so microaggressions are just, they're so important to look at. And, and thinking about, you know, if somebody tells me that they felt harmed, as a leader, I need to look at my own behavior and say, okay, was what I did harmful? And whether or not what I did was harmful or it was something I do again, I still need to validate this person's experience of what happened and say, hey, I'm hearing that that felt really, really harmful for you. Can you tell me more? I would love to hear your perspective. What I find is, is that, again, it's the okay, this person cares about me. So, and I know that I'm going to be safe with them if I bring up something that doesn't feel good. So not only am I going to tell this person when I've made mistakes, when I don't think something's right, when I think that we could save money somewhere, I'm also going to really show up in my job in a way that I can't if I'm worried about how I fit in and if I have the right mask on the whole day. As I'm listening to you, there are a couple of things that come to mind very often on this podcast and in my work. I reference Judith Glasser's uh, model for creating and sustaining trust. And the acronym, there are two letters of that acronym are T for transparency and R for relationship. Mm -hmm. And as I'm listening to you, I'm hearing both of those playing out. I need to be transparent when you've caused me some harm or some sense of unsafety. Yeah. And 
you need to be open to that. And in order for that to happen, we have to have a relationship that allows me to share that with you. Yes. And in building that kind of relationship in being open to that kind of feedback in your response of curiosity, rather than defensiveness or dismissiveness or judgment, mm -hmm. um, that response of curiosity tells me you care about me. Yes. You recognize that I've just done this very vulnerable thing and come to you and said, Hey, that this did not feel good for me. You are understanding how hard that is to do. And again, we're not, we're not placating and saying, oh, I'm so sorry, right away. What I typically say to people is like, hey, hearing that this felt not good for you, I'm noticing I'm feeling dysregulating listening to this, and I don't want to put that on you. So are you comfortable with me taking a day and processing through this on my own? And then can we set up a time to reconvene? And what I can also do in that, that time frame is sometimes we need more information. Sometimes there's a piece of the, what they brought to you. Well, I actually kind of need to know what happened with this other person over here as well. Or, hey, this person's bringing this up. There's 10 other people in our department who are like them. Do I need to go ask these other nine, hey, are you experiencing this too? And yes, have this meeting with this one human, but not stop there. Have a meeting with all 10 and say, hey, realizing this is an issue and this is what we're going to do about it. And do you have feedback on that? Does that feel like an appropriate solution? And I think like getting into leading from that space because it is so hard there i have had team members and clients say things to me that my nervous system wants to go straight into fight mode or straight into fawn and just start crying and tell them that they can have whatever they want and i'm sure people who are listening can think of examples in very you know professional situations where people have gone into those responses and if you just think about how how much of an energy shift that is for the entire room when the leader does that. You lose that sense of trust because it's, okay, I cannot, I know now that person tried to bring something to them and that did not go well. Or the leader said something and someone said, hey, could we use this term instead? And the leader dismissed it. I'm not risking my belonging here by, by bringing anything to them. And then that's where people stop telling you what's wrong in their bodies or in their experience, but they also stop telling you about mistakes that they've made. They stop telling you about places in process that they're seeing issues and they start just punching the clock and coming to work and protecting themselves. And that's when, like I said, that's when we start having a really big problem is you've stopped hearing about all of the negative things just because you stopped hearing about them doesn't mean they're not happening. You also stop hearing all of the ideas for making things better. Yes. When I was a brand new nurse practitioner, I came in there so to my first job, so excited and with so many ideas. And at first they were like, yes, this is amazing. And then after a little while, they, they, I remember being in a meeting where I just had this profound realization of we're saying we want innovation. 
and we're not valuing innovation. And the more that I am getting excited about innovating in specific ways, the more I'm seeing that I'm actually putting myself in a precarious position because they're starting to see me as a questioner. Troublemaker, space, troublemaker. Right, a troublemaker that in a space that does not value questioning and troublemaking. Yeah. And so we recently hired a, we call her our chief nurturer. <laughs> She's the person who you first interact with when you come into our spaces. And when she came in, she had all of these questions. And then she had a moment. You could tell she had a moment of vulnerability. And she went, I'm so sorry. I'm probably asking way too many questions and pointing out way too many things. And I said, no, absolutely not. I said, I need you to keep doing this. And let's create a Google Doc where you can put everything. And as and we can pick out and talk about what's what are the priorities what are the things that we really do want to fix right away? And we can start ranking the order of those together as a team. And other team members started adding to the adding to it. And it's so beautiful because there's parts of the, the organization as a leader that I don't see on a daily basis or even on a weekly basis. And so to have other people going, hey, do you know that this isn't working is so helpful. Years ago, I went to work for somebody that I had worked with. So we had two different employers mm -hmm. and then he became my employer. And we had that earlier relationship for years. And very early on, he called me in and sat me down. And he said, one of the things I really respect about you is when we were working together in different organizations, you were always truthful with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I need you to continue to do that because there aren't very many people here who will tell me what I mm. need to hear. They tell me what I want to hear. And working for him, I came to understand why that was. Mm. Because it wasn't safe until you had built He And we had this conversation once and I always start from a position of trust until you demonstrate that I can't trust you. Yeah. He admittedly starts from a position of until you demonstrate that I can trust you, I'm not going to. And so people were just afraid to be truthful with him. If we create scenarios in our employees or our team members or even our customers' brains that are cognitively dissonant, right? I'm being told to do one thing. And I also have evidence that when I do that thing, it's not going to go well. Our brains, our, our nervous systems go, this is dangerous. I, I don't know what to pick here. I don't know if I should trade my need for agency and for you know my own safety for the potential loss of another form of safety, which is my job or my income. And you know, one of the, the best examples of this I saw in a, in a consulting role, I went into an organization um, from a private security perspective. And so these were some very highly trained humans. Um, many of them had, uh, were former military. And there's a leader saying, hey, I want you to use your best judgment and make decisions based off of these criteria. And then in the team meeting, 
We are individually calling out all of the mistakes that each member has made and talking and saying, why didn't you call me on this? Why didn't you ask for my opinion on this? And I was relatively new in my career. So, uh, and I had not been hired to provide that feedback <laughs> to that person. I, I don't, I don't know how that would have been received or not. Now I think I would have found a way to do it, but I was still very new. But it was just so glaringly obvious watching these people at this, in this conference table, they were stuck because they had no idea which direction to move. Yeah. And that is, we don't want to paralyze our people. Lee, this is such an important topic. Any last thoughts to share with our listeners on trauma and or psychological safety? When people feel like you care about them, when they have evidence that you have, that you are going to consider them. For some people, you're going to get that from them right off the bat. They're going to trust you right away. And like you were referring to this um, previous colleague slash employer, some humans are going to come to you with that sense of distrust. And for a lot of us as leaders, we can get really triggered by that ourselves, especially if, if we are humans who trust first. And so something that is so helpful for me to remember is it's not that this person doesn't want to trust me. It's that their nervous system is simply trying to protect them. And so I get to I get to be the reason that their nervous system starts trusting people more easily. I get to be the reason that they start trusting leaders more easily or just humans in general. And when I come at my work from that perspective, when people get really upset or when they're defensive or when they go into any of those, those reactive responses, it really does make it so much easier to, to go to that curiosity and attunement space because it helps me feel like I actually have some agency and some the ability to empower in that space. And so that's something I just want to leave with everyone is the impact that you could have on a human by simply giving them your attention and giving them your, your acceptance and validation. It's not going to just improve what's happening in your workspace, that's going to have a ripple effect after that person walks out of your door every day. And that's really cool. Lee Cordell, thank you for this conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. 